Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy. It's not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Jake Ernst. Jake is a therapist, a writer, a podcast host, partner, a dog dad, a brother, a friend, and the clinical director at Straight Up Health, which is a mental health clinic for young people and their families in Toronto, Canada. Straight Up Health offers teens and young adults access to approachable, empowering mental health care. And as a therapist, Jake helps people identify patterns that are keeping them stuck so they can reconnect with themselves and build a life they love. So, Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I gave a, a bit of an introduction, uh, but so that the audience can get to know you better, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and your background? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of, one of the, the things that really stands out to me from just that introduction there is um, my recent edition of Dog Dad. I started putting that in my bio because I that gets a lot of likes, a lot of clicks, and people uh, really resonate with the dog dad uh, <laughs> part of me. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I so I have a dog, um, but uh, I'm also a therapist. I work with young people, and specifically I work with young people, helping them sort through just what it means to be a young person today. And then I work a ton with families and parents to help them also figure out and sort through what does it mean to be a parent today. And so kind of the marriage of both of those things means that I, I help people sit through and sort through just a ton of really complex or seemingly complex um, things in modern in the modern context um, and help them navigate uh, the stress of the modern life and the modern context that they're living in. So, of course, as we know, that can be very varied. Um, and that can look different across um, each individual person's experience. But really, I think the goal of my work is to help people surface, like, what is it that I need to focus on? And what is it that I actually need for my own growth and for my own healing? I think there's so much content out there. There are so many different pieces and slices of information that it's hard to sort through, right? It's hard for people to figure out like, okay, well, actually, what is my story? Or what does a, what applies to me? And so I think in, in my therapy room, I really help people sort through that very question. That's great. And then also you have um, a podcast called This Is Not Therapy. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's right. Uh, it's a podcast I host with my very best friend. He and I, uh, we really just think that talking about mental health and destigmatizing conversations about mental health um, and specifically not keeping conversations about mental health to the therapy room is really important. So I love what you're doing here. And we do something very similar on our show where we talk about uh, various therapy themes and we pull them out of the therapy room and we just sort of talk about them in a really fun, silly, serious kind of way. Um, and it's uh, it kind of has a bit of a comedy angle. My uh, my friend is a, uh, a filmmaker and an improv uh, actor. And so he does a lot of just like funny kind of riffs on um, the topics that we're talking about. And so, of course, I access the conversation uh, from a place of uh, expertise. And so I think it's a pretty fun uh, time. That sounds great, man. Um, so also you work with teens and families to help create positive family habits. Um, what, is, what does that look like? Yeah, it's really about building um, our toolbox and our toolkit for uh, understanding ourselves and understanding ourselves in relationship to other people. Because uh, my background is in 
neuroscience and child development, I approach therapy from a, a science-informed and science-backed uh, perspective where I am helping people build their toolkit and helping them reach and um, achieve different developmental milestones from childhood that perhaps were missed or perhaps were regressed um, due to trauma or due to overwhelm, due to stress uh, in early childhood or even into adolescence and helping them repair and sort of build that toolbox uh, moving forward so they can draw on different sets of skills in um, later life. And so we know that the number one predictor of success in therapy is the relationship. So I, I take that component of therapy really seriously, meaning that I do a ton of work with my clients on our relationship, so me with them, and then also uh, helping them build relationships in their lives so they can transfer the skills that we're learning or teaching or building in therapy. Wow. That sounds so um, therapeutic and helpful. Uh, you mentioned something, and, and this is kind of like, it, it's a hot topic nowadays. Everybody's saying it, like trauma. What, what, what and how would you define trauma? I would define trauma as anything that overwhelms the nervous system's ability to cope with the current environment. And typically those things are things that happen too much, too fast, too soon, or not enough, or not often, or not frequently enough. And so from an attachment perspective, that is the not enough, that is the not frequently enough stuff, which is, you know, not enough love, not enough warmth, mm -hmm. not enough safety, not enough um, uh, community, not enough caregiving. Um, and then on the other side of that, it could also be the overwhelm uh, portion of that, which is too much, too fast, too soon. Um, so whether, whether that's um, too many big emotions happening, um, too many adverse uh, experiences in childhood, uh, too much um, adversity or community adversity uh, growing up. And that can really just repattern the nervous system's ability to connect and relate with other people. And so it moves us from a place of uh, individual um, uh, thriving to a place of individual surviving. So we move into survival mode and then we kind of go back into our base instincts where we're tapping into our survival patterning rather than actual our ability to connect and to socialize and to uh, relate to other people. Wow. And these are all basic core like human needs, right? Th these things that cause us trauma or that we don't get enough of. But it seems like it's become so difficult to just have a conversation about them, to just talk about normal things, right? And and even that in and of itself can cause us to not get our needs met. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask you was, what are three core human needs? Yeah, I kind of think about our core human needs as operating all together simultaneously. I know we're a lot of us are sort of used to this conversation about needs through the lens of Maslow and perhaps a pyramid or a hierarchy. And I look at them as um, inseparable. So they, they don't necessarily just exist on their own. They exist in relationship with each other. And so we have our primal needs. We have our really kind of basic primal needs that are um, with us throughout our entire lives, right? So this is um, our most primal need. And the first primal need is our breath and breathing so we need oxygen in order to survive and you know we can't survive more than let's say four to five minutes without um oxygen then we also have our other primal needs for nourishment and food for sleep for hydration 
um, learning and growth, for movement. Those are a part of what I call our primal package of needs. And those are the, the needs that sort of uh, help us be healthy and functioning and well, kind of at our very base core. So when I think about like teens and young people and therapy and in quite frankly, even adults, that's one of the first things I'm assessing for is I'm looking at, okay, what are our primal needs are kind of in the picture here and which ones are going unmet? So for example, if we're not breathing properly or if we're not um, nourishing our body with food and with water and with sleep, then that will take our mental health to a very different place and a complicated place at that. We need to be watered, we need to be fed, we need to you know, be rested in order to access the higher order type of needs. Um, and I would call the second sort of stage of those needs in addition to the primal needs is our growth needs. Um, and so that's our, our um, need for learning, our need for innovation, our need for adventure, our need for kind of just um, to stimulate our brain and to like promote blood flow and movement and those types of things. So those would be kind of in the growth category. And then we also have what I call our tandem needs. I call them our tandem needs because it's kind of like a tandem bike. You know how like when you're on a bicycle and you're all pedaling together and there's maybe three people that can go on one bike and can kind of pedal at the same time. I look at our tandem needs um, as three core human needs, which are safety, belonging, and mattering. Those are the tandem needs because unlike our primal needs, they're the ones that sort of shift with our context or shift with our modern environment that we're in right now. So for example, in 1845, our primal needs would stay the same as they do right now in 2023. Whereas the prior, or sorry, the, um, the tandem needs in 1845 would be just different. That's just, it was a different context, right? Back in um, uh, many, many years ago. Whereas in 2023, the tandem needs for safety, belonging, and mattering have sort of shifted with our environment, right? And of course, politics influences that. Of course, you know, our community influences that. Of course, just what's going on in the world influences that. Our social landscape, our relationships all influence that. The internet technology is a really big one right now that influences that. And so safety, belonging, and mattering are the tandem needs that shift and change uh, throughout the lifespan and as we kind of grow and as you kind of know like safety belonging and mattering are really complicated um, in the current context um, and quite frankly adding a ton of trauma for folks because these needs are going unmet on a routine basis wow so in a culture that rewards individual thriving and encourages constant comparison right how do we feed our need for closeness and connection, especially because things are different now? Wow. Uh, <laughs> this question <laughs> keeps me up at night. Holy. Uh, this is, I think, just a really important question for our times. I think that, you know, um, we, there, and there, of course, are many layers to this conversation. I won't, of course, um, be able to do them all justice. But I think that that, yeah, we are living in this culture of hyper-individualism that I, I think is just really disconnecting us from ourselves, quite frankly, and also disconnecting us from each other. And I think that there are many different parts of us that sort of come to the surface in this conversation of individual thriving, where we are sort of made or suggested to just like do everything by ourselves and be able to like function on our own without community support or without relationship. And I think that it's really creating a ton of competition, a mm. ton of comparison, a ton of what I call the compare and despair um, uh, dilemma that really kind of keeps us in this state of constant comparison, like a comparison loop, not just 
how do I measure up to you? But can I actually survive if I don't measure up to you? I think that's a really big stark difference that sort of gets created. And one of my major theories is that the internet has really changed how we connect and changed how we relate. And so a big part of my work, especially with young people, is helping people sort through uh, the, the layers of how that is true, um, how it pulls us apart from each other and causes us to do some of the more antisocial forms of connection, which are um, aggression, comparison, competition, um, and what, yeah, the, this individual thriving sort of thing where we're all just on our own path. I think that the more we try to have these comparisons and, you know, we, we're just go, go, go. We, we just become more and more disconnected from ourselves. And then we just create different patterns and ways of being that continue to take us further and further away. So that was a, a great explanation. Um, what I wanted to ask next is keeping up with the, the fast pace and demands of this culture can lead to stress and anxiety. So if anxiety is meant to help us avoid things, does that mean that we have to listen to anxiety all the time? Ooh, you know, I think this is another big, big, um, I think the, the fact that we're talking more about mental health and talking more about um, feelings and the difference even between thoughts and feelings, I think this is all really important. It's all really healthy in, in good discussion. And I also feel strongly about being able to have accurate information and accurate tools to be able to come to that discussion with a really good toolbox of knowledge. And I think that in the culture of when we're trying to understand, you know, what are these emotions that I'm feeling inside of me? How can I make sense of all the stress and stuff that's kind of coursing through my body or causing my heart to race or causing my thoughts to overthink? What I think can be really challenging is that we start to label in really blanket terms. So we start to say, oh, this is anxiety or this is depression. And what we actually know is that there's a really big, deep, rich nuance here to this conversation that it's not always anxiety. It's not always depression. It's not always, you know, the clinical forms of these things. It's also not always, let's say, ADHD, right? It's, there are many different ways of understanding ourselves and understanding what's happening inside. And so in, in, the, anxiety, in the anxiety conversation, I think it's important to really look at like, what is the purpose of anxiety? And the whole um, purpose of anxiety is to help us avoid things. Um, the whole reason why anxiety is uncomfortable is so that we pay attention to it, so that we avoid the thing that makes us uncomfortable. And so the challenge with that is that in a modern context, we don't need to be avoiding every single thing that makes us uncomfortable. And I think that this is this is hard for us to really discern and to be able to actually figure out like, okay, well, what are the things that anxiety is instructing me to avoid? And what do I actually need to avoid? And what are the things that anxiety is instructing me to avoid that I actually don't need to avoid because it's safe and it's okay? For example, if I'm walking through the forest, uh, anxiety is the thing that's going to help me run out of the way if a bear comes, right? If a bear jumps in front of me, anxiety is going to help me avoid that threat, that big danger, so that I can stay safe. But if I'm walking through the woods and, for example, uh, it's a dog that kind of pops out with their owner and I think it's a bear, anxiety is a thing that's going to help me cue into, like, oh, whoa, my gosh, I have this anxiety response, but I also don't need to avoid it. and I don't need to run as fast as anxiety is instructing me to do. And I think that to take that really kind of easy, simple example, we can look at all the other forms of 
stress and anxiety and threat responses that we have in a modern context that we don't actually need to be living in fight or flight mode all the time. But with constant like internet activation and constant, you know, infighting and community like dysfunction, there are just so many like bells and whistles that our brain is seeing as threat responses. And we, uh, a lot of wires are getting crossed. So it, it, it's making us really confused and, um, unable to discern like what is a real threat and what is a real danger and what do I need to avoid versus like what is actually okay and what is what can I tolerate um, just being here and present in the moment and so it's a it's a complicated process right for us to figure out like what is real and what is perceived and unfortunately our emotions really do kind of play on that middle ground of sometimes the threat is real and sometimes it's just imagined and that's really, really complicated and hard for us to uh, sort through if we don't have a set of tools and, and skills to do that. And so that's what that's my main approach to therapy is helping people build that toolbox. Wow. Having the tools, I think, is one of the most important things because I just I recently had a session where my therapist told me the brain cannot discern between same and similar. Right. So if we have uh, a situation where we were had some some big activation from anxiety. Now, anytime we have a similar situation, we're going to have the same response. So having the tools to be able to make that discernment between the bear and the dog and the owner, like you mentioned, I think is is going to make all the difference. So another question I wanted to ask, and because you work with adolescents, um, when kids don't want to add stress to the family, what roles can they start to play? When uh, we're sort of in therapy, let's say, and we're starting to unpack, like, what are some of the layers of my own history and my own story that impact kind of my current day? So I, I like to draw a, a differentiator between what is the historical and what is like from the past and what is also occurring in the present. And sometimes the way that we have grown up in our family and the roles that we kind of learned that we had to play in our family start to impact how we are as adults and uh, in the present context. And so when kids don't want to add stress to the family, they usually kind of adopt the role of the quiet kid, the good kid, or the nice kid. All this is to say is that they adopt the role of a kid that doesn't have any needs. Because they don't want to add more stress to the family, they don't want to, you know, make things more complicated for their parents. They they become the good kid, the quiet kid, or the nice kid, the kid that doesn't have any needs. And so what that kind of looks like is the individual thriver, the kid that kind of learns really quickly, oh, I have to do everything on my own. And I have to, and I can do everything on my own, right? Because look, I have no needs. I have nothing that I need from the adults around me because I'm maybe perhaps smart or capable or very perceptive. So I'm very aware. I can look into my surroundings. And so I can sort of see like, what is going on around me. And therefore, what we can start to do as, as young kids is really sort of take on this role of I got it all sorted out. I don't need adult help. I'm going to do it all by myself. And what that does is it, it turns us into either these quiet kids who kind of fly under the radar and we don't have any needs um, noticed by the adults around us. Uh, so therefore, we don't learn to voice our needs or ask for help as adults. 
or we learn to become the quiet kids. So kids that don't actually like speak up when we need to, aren't able to set boundaries, perhaps we're a bit more of the people pleasing nature where we're kind of more like quiet and just like good natured. Um, or then we kind of fit the role or assume the role of the nice kid, the kid who just kind of has to be, uh, you know, super friendly in order to secure connections, just overly nice, overly pleasant, and perhaps overly positive. Uh, so is not to rock the boat or disrupt the family system. And in doing so, we kind of learn into adulthood that we have to play that similar role. So as not to stress other people out or put strain on our relationships. And so I see this showing up a lot in work. I see this showing up a lot in adult relationships. And I see this showing up a lot in um, family um, adult relationships, um, as it were, um, kind of built in their childhood. And so what I like to do is I, I, I help people build the skills so that they don't have to live from a place of childhood or from a place of not wanting to stress out the family system so that they can also thrive as adults. It's incredible that not having your needs met as a child can, or having to play a role in the family as a child so that you can, uh, you know, kind of fly under the radar, can then later on in life show up in different aspects like work um, and our relationships and, and things of that nature, especially, you know, if you if you learn to stay quiet, then at work, you may take on too much responsibility because you don't want to speak up and rock the boat, so to speak. And that can lead to you burning out, you know, so it, it's so important to address these things and to have these conversations. So I'm, I'm glad that you touched on that and that you, you work with children and families at an early age to help break these cycles and patterns. Oh, yes. You know, and I think the other thing, too, is that where um, where we learn to sort of take on more or absorb more stress, we can fall into a pattern of oh, I, this is my job. My job is actually to hold more stress than I can manage. And so I'm, I'm happy you brought up the, the point about burnout because I think it can really create um, a relationship pattern where we start to take on a role or we play a role that we actually don't have to play. And so we take on more stress in our families. We take on more stress in our relationships. We take on more um, you know, responsibilities, as you mentioned, in work. And that can actually just um, really complicate our own well-being and our own ability to be able to set boundaries and to be firm about this is my capacity and this is what I can do and this is what I can't do. Unfortunately, I won't be um, available to do that thing or take on that extra job. But yeah, it goes back to that sort of childhood part that sort of is in that really vulnerable place of needing to secure connection. This is really all about the, the attachment system really early on, which is that we often choose to abandon ourselves so that we can remain connected to other people. And when people are setting up a system or when parents are creating a family situation where kids are having to abandon their own needs or abandon their own selves in order to secure love and belonging, that can make it for a really complicated family dynamic. And uh, of course, that translates into adulthood. Now, it's not normal or typical that kids will say, can we talk about my mental health, right? Um, because they don't know how to communicate that. So what are some things that kids will say instead of, can we talk about my mental health or, or what are some things that they might say? Usually when uh, we don't have the language to describe what's going on inside, we try to make sense of uh, some of the symptoms. So some of the symptoms that start to come up 
are, um, you know, like an upset stomach or maybe like our heart is beating really fast or maybe we get really sweaty. So there's the somatic or the physiological symptoms that do um, come on uh, board with uh, this experience of mental health. And unfortunately, like the thinking and language centers of our brain don't have a powerful enough influence over the survival circuits of our brain or nervous system. And so for kids to be able to articulate and tap into that language center of like, this is what's going on and I can precisely actually label it and determine what's happening uh, is, is a really complex task developmentally. And so it usually sort of shows up as my tummy hurts. It shows up as, can you stay with me? Can you cuddle with me? I need a hug. Or I can't do this. I don't know how. Or maybe it also shows up through the communication pattern of a temper tantrum. Maybe um, in early adolescence, it shows up as um, uh, being quiet and really private and maybe putting your hood up or, you know, just putting on your headphones and kind of disappearing or escaping kind of into your preferred uh, method of soothing, which is perhaps could be music or listening or watching YouTube or falling down a rabbit hole of an algorithm. And so really what this is about is um, figuring out and noticing the difference between a stress behavior and then also what it, types of uh, uh, things as stress behaviors are communicating about our stress. And so usually it's, uh, it's instructing us to look deeper, deeper. And so I really encourage parents to look at um, these stress behaviors such as, you know, an upset tummy or, you know, a hood up or, you know, kids just isolating themselves in their room. I see all of that as stress behavior. And when we can put on kind of a stress detective hat, we can kind of actually look deeper and to say, what are they trying to say here? What are they trying to communicate that they don't yet have the skills or the language to actually communicate? And so we can actually look at the function of the behavior and look at behavior as communication. What is kind of giving me like a light bulb moment here is that, you know, reparenting myself through parenting my child and being able to have these tools and the, like the detective, the stress detective hat, like you mentioned, I like that a lot. Um, when you, when you see these behaviors, now you can, you can get curious with them as opposed to just avoiding them or just sidestepping them because you may see it as something that you did as a child. And now it gets uncomfortable because it was uncomfortable as a child when you were doing it. So now being able to have that, you know, that toolbox and to be able to look at it and see and say, okay, well, he or she may be doing this and it may be because of this. Now you can go back and give yourself maybe what you didn't get or in doing so you can, you can kind of disrupt the, the patterns that may be causing the, the mental health ailments, you know, and because the children can't communicate, what's really going on, you can help them be expressive and, and pull out the things and emotions that they may be feeling. So I, I really am so glad that we can have this conversation and provide these tools to not only the parents, but also the adolescents who may need it to be able to express themselves better. So another question I wanted to ask is, um, what role does the internet and social media have on kids upbringing today? I think to your to your exact point that you know we have to have uh, relationships and we have to have models for effective communication and skill building in uh, early adolescence and 
even deeper than that early childhood. And when we don't have the models and we don't have the relationships, we don't have the caregiving or the guardianship that teaches us those things, then we learn or we are forced to do it by ourselves. And so one of the major impacts I think that social media has on today's kids is that the internet is actually raising them in a way that parents and caregivers don't necessarily have access to in today's uh, modern context. There's a ton of kids who are doing life alone, who are um, feeling um, the burden of having to learn about the world all by themselves and make sense of all this information that they're seeing on social media. And at the very same time, trying to organize all this stress and all this um, anxiety and fear and worry about the state of the future based on what they're seeing just on their phone or scrolling through a feed. And so typically, and perhaps before the internet, a way that, that kids learn and a way that kids sort of made sense of the world was through the adults in their lives. They kind of just, you know, of course, have teachers, coaches, uh, mentors. There are adults who help young people organize their lives, right, as they're growing up. And so when we don't have that, let's say outside of the internet, when we don't have that, of course, then we have to learn how to do that by ourselves in adulthood, right? And so when kids with the internet don't have that healthy connection to adults or perhaps to caregivers, mentors, coaches, leaders, they are again having to do that um, in their later adulthood. And so unfortunately, I think that, that social media is replacing adult relationships and adult connections. And that is not allowing kids to develop the skills to thrive and to be able to function in places like um, uh, work, let's say, or being able to like meet or achieve their milestones in early adulthood um, of like branching out and going out to move uh, on their own, for example, to like leave home or even just for them to be able to learn the skills to be able to raise their own family. And so I really do worry about the state of the internet and specifically social media and its impact on our ability to connect and relate with other people. And I think the main culprit of that is that it is replacing um, uh, relationships uh, with an algorithm. And I don't think that's healthy for us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that the internet is a, a powerful tool, but also if it's not used appropriately or in moderation, like you said, it can replace the healthy connections that we, we once had. And then that leads to just more and more problems. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed that out. Yeah, I think the, the big nuance there, just as you mentioned, is the fact that, of course, uh, the internet is also a really safe place for a ton of people. And it's a really uh, healing place. And it's a place of growth and learning. And uh, of course, there are many benefits to um, deepening community uh, through this really modern technology, which is the internet. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I too hold space for both things to be true. All right. Okay, so you wrote an article called Untying the Knots from Childhood, right? Um, and you spoke about honoring our childhood experience for a healthy progression and growth as adults. Um, what are some ways to connect and honor with your inner child that you would you would bring out? You know, I think that there's this big myth of growing up that, you know, when we grow up, we have to have it all figured out. We have to know everything. We have to be completely functioning and capable adults that just have all the answers and have everything sorted out. And I, 
just don't think that that's true, first of all. And I don't think that's actually a productive belief for us to hold. I think it can actually be um, a pretty limiting belief, actually. Uh, one that keeps us stuck in um, uh, the childhood fear and stuck from living from that place of uh, distress of like, I don't know how to do this, right? And I and I can't be, quote unquote, an adult, or I can't um, do the things that other people around me are doing that I see everyone doing on social media, or that I see all the other, you know, kind of parents doing as they're raising their kids. And unfortunately, uh, you know, living from that place can also just add more stress and more comparison into the mix. And so one of the really healthy ways that we can, as adults, really sort of repattern that system or help heal from some of the dysfunction that we experience as kids is to tap into, well, what was that experience like for me as a child? And one of the really great ways to do that is to connect through this sort of analogy of having an inner child or the smaller, younger part of us that is um, vulnerable, that is scared, that is perhaps feeling these really big, intense emotions that we can't make sense of. The inner child is by nature, um, of course, younger. It's a, the youngest part of ourself. And so are our emotions. Our emotions are also by nature primitive. They're by nature um, really young. Um, and by nature, they're un underdeveloped, right? And that's the the really great, amazing quality of being human is that we've evolved actually to override that capacity within us. We've over we've evolved to uh, use our thinking brain to talk to our emotional brain. And so, one of the ways that again we can talk to our the emotional part of ourselves, which is again by nature that really small, younger, youngest part of ourselves is to be able to be in conversation with that part rather than living in conflict with that part. So conversation versus conflict. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of us really do uh, live in conflict with that part of ourselves, living in conflict with the youngest part of ourselves that actually has a ton of wisdom to share and a ton of emotion and um, value to offer. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us live in resistance uh, with that part of ourselves. And we, a lot of us wish that our emotions would go away. A lot of us wish that we didn't have these really big feelings. A lot of us wish that we didn't have all this confusion and stress as a part of our adult experience. Because remember, as adults, we're supposed to have it figured out, um, so to speak. Um, and unfortunately, I think that what we actually want uh, or need rather is integration. Um, and so fortunately, sorry, Fortunately, what we need is integration. We need to be able to bring all those parts home together so they can all live in harmony and talk to each other rather than living from that place of disintegration or fragmentation where all these different parts are just kind of floating in space and we're kind of being made to wrangle them up and make sense of them on the fly. And so integration is what we need. And connecting with our inner child is the way to do that. We want to bring that little kid with us and we can sort of really you know, intentional practice that we can do is just to be able to speak to it. I think about my inner child as, you know, maybe that like nine, 10, 11 year old that kind of lives within me. And I can kind of just bring them when I'm like speaking on a podcast like this, or perhaps like delivering a workshop or a presentation to a big group of people. Like, yeah, I'm bringing that younger part of part of me because that's the scared part. That's the part that wants to be really loud and say, don't go, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> stay really small and stay stay like a kid. <laughs> and so I bring, I bring that younger part with me. I think um, branching off of something that you mentioned, like we do believe we're supposed to have it all together as an adult, right? But not being 
able to really understand what all together is can be confusing. And then also, if we did have some dysfunction as a child, our inner child, we don't know how to connect with it. We don't know what it is. Um, we, we run from these things. So all of that stuff mixed in a pot and stirred together can really be confusing and just keep us disconnected from wanting to feel our big feelings. So the way you, the way you mentioned that and, and the way you brought out connecting with that inner child and bringing them along with you, you know, cause that's the scare part, but talking to it. And, and I think a lot of us may not even know what our inner child really is. So having these conversations does so much for it because when we can say, Oh, well, that's what that is, or, or that's what I was feeling, or that's how I can connect internally. It does so much for it. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to talk about that and the way you brought it out. One of, one of the ways that I kind of uh, speak about it just uh, with my clients. And then of course on in places like this, where I get the great privilege to talk about these things is I usually say I work with kids and inner kids. Because usually a lot of this work is about, of course, working with the kids in front of me. And then, of course, tapping in to the inner kids that are inside of us as we're also doing this work. And, and that's sort of how I access some this from a place of parenting work as well. Do you get some weird looks when you say inner kids? Oh, I sure do. And it's great. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty fun. I, people look at me like, wait, what? And I'm like, wait, hold on one sec. Stay with me a second. Let me explain. <laughs> and then we just take a moment to kind of like resurface and we come back and then they go, oh yeah, I know that makes sense. But it's funny. I, I actually work with a ton of adults um, as parents who are dying to tap into their inner child, right? To their inner kid. That's like, I just want to like let loose a, a little bit. I just want to have fun again. I just want like life to be a bit more adventurous and fun and free and not so stuffy and serious and just like big all the time. And so I think that people like want that permission. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's also really clouded by the really fluffiness of let's say let what we'll, what we would call inner child work, right? I think it can really seem really abstract for folks and it can really seem like a bit fluffy and a bit kind of like, oh, that's a bit stupid. I don't think that would work. That doesn't, that wouldn't really help me. But I think that when we can just like speak about it honestly and speak about it from a place of you want to like be free, right? You want to have more adventure, right? You want to like kind of be more open, right? Okay, well, that's a childlike part of you. That isn't, that's something that develops really early on. And we're going to tap into that in order to access these more authentic parts of ourselves as adults so that we can actually regulate our emotions and regulate our thoughts and regulate our stress rather than live from a place of trying to suppress it or avoid it or not confront it. I agree. I agree a lot. And I think that we're, we're still, a lot of us are still abiding by antiquated rules. You know, like I, I know a lot of my friends, their parents used to say to them when I was 30, I had a house, we had two cars, we had, you know, our family was up and running and you're, we're, we're 35 and 40 and, you know, still trying to figure stuff out. So when we compare it to their generation and their time, we automatically are going to feel insignificant. Right. And then combine that with, like I mentioned, the, the inner child issues. And now we are just lost, you know, but we have to remember that there's different rules for different times. Like you mentioned early on in the podcast. And, and I think doing that and then learning how to connect with your inner child can bring so much freedom and healing. It's so true. And you know, I, for me, one of my big values is just being open to and being flexible to change. 
And I, it is probably some of the most uncomfortable and hardest work that I do um, day in and day out is just being open and flexible to change. And, uh, you know, that, that inner child wants me to stay super close, super like rigid and super like, nope, this is the way things are. And it has to be this way forever. But, you know, we have to be flexible. We have to be open and willing to adapt. We have to be able to adapt. That's what life is. Life is just a series of cycles that we're made to adapt to, right? 100%. 100%. So you have a book coming out, right? I wanted you to talk a little bit about your book. Well, I'm currently writing a book. It's um, There's nothing okay. in press at the moment, meaning that there's no, um, there's no book that is um, scheduled. However... I am, I'm writing about this stuff. This is stuff that really, uh, you know, I think really deeply impacts us. And also really, I think just at our core, we're really like hungry for this information. I think that this is the next stage of our evolution as, as a species. I really, I know that's a really big kind of heady way of saying it, but I, I do think that this mental health revolution is our next evolution as a species. And I think that being able to tap into our emotions and tap into our psychology and tap into our thoughts and our is just going to really unlock a new way of relating and a new way of just being together as a species. And I, and I hope that uh, I really just believe in the power and the capacity of humans to be able to innovate and to be able to uh, unlock and tap into just our, our, our very core nature of our being. And so I'm going to talk um, in my book a lot about um, stress about relationships, what it does to community and what it does to um, our own sense of individuality um, through a lot of the very similar concepts that I was talking about, which is that at our core, we need each other. We're a social species and we also need ourselves. And so we need our, we need each other and we need ourselves is going to be the main kind of tenant of the book. Gotcha. I'm sure it'll be uh, hot on the press once it hits. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes i i fingers crossed <laughs> so last question i wanted to ask you right um with everything we've discussed and with with your knowledge and your expertise and your ability to help people connect with themselves if someone was on the fence about therapy or talking to you know someone about their their big feelings or their emotions and they kind of just you know are, are stuck what advice would you give them and on how to, to get to a place of being able to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I have a, a personal mantra that I think sort of fits here and it's not everything is as urgent as it feels. And when we only listen to emotion and we only listen to stress, anxiety, and urgency, then we create this big emergency inside of us, right? That keeps us stuck quite frankly. And unfortunately, that's kind of the paradox and that's kind of the um, unintended consequence, right, of only listening to emotion is that when we only listen to our stress and only just like, you know, feel these really big emotions, then that can also keep us stuck instead of helping us get free. And so I think that part of um, what I like to just remind myself is that nothing is urgent. I have time. There's uh, at my own pace and on my own time, I can do this work and I can go slow. I think giving yourself permission just to go slow is so healing in a really fast paced culture and in a really, quite frankly, in an urgent culture that has, you know, the, what I call the Amazon effect, which is that I can have anything at my door tomorrow if I want it. 
and the Netflix effect, which is that like there are so many endless options and choices that I'm actually swimming in so many options and choices that I feel like I'm drowning. And what I also call the Tinder effect, which is that like if I don't like it, I can swipe left. If I love it, I'm going to swipe right. But that's not the way the world works. That's not the world, right? The world around us isn't just urgent and available and abundant all the time, which means that we can practice discernment. It means that we can go slow. We can actually choose our own pace rather than just feeding into the pace of what everyone else is doing. And I think that goes back to kind of what you're saying about the rules. And so another big question I ask myself is like, where did I learn that? Or who taught me that? Or who said that, that had, it had to be that way? And that gives me enough permission to sort of say, oh, right, I'm in charge. I get to decide what I do and I get to decide how I show up. So what that means is that for people that don't want to come to therapy, okay, you get to choose that. You a thousand percent get to choose that. And it will also be really helpful and important and healing if you do choose that. So I like to be able just to sort of say, nothing is urgent. Go at your own best pace and come if you want. And also don't come if you don't want to. That's great advice. Great, great advice. And everything you've, you've spoken about and, and, you know, shared has been so good. Uh, so I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me and for finding value and in, in what I'm trying to do as well. Yeah, I have a deep gratitude for your work, Jalan. That's a, that's it's it's amazing, amazing, amazing work that you are doing for yourself. Um, I can tell that it has that this really this work means a lot to you and uh, for the community and the folks that listen. Um, so I, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, man. So if someone wants to find you online or on social media, where can they look you up? You can uh, follow me at MSW Jake. I'm a social worker, so my background is, um, I have an MSW, that's the, uh, the credential that I have. And uh, yeah, you can follow me at MSW Jake on all platforms. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Jake, again, thank you so much for this. It's been so good to sit and talk with you and have a conversation about mental health, um, continually trying to reduce the stigma that these things are not something that needs to be avoided. We can talk about them. We can come together. We can have community. We can connect. We can heal. And so thank you so much for this. Thank you for, for what you do, how you do it, and for who you are. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Congrats on all your success. Thank you. Thank you for having me.